Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, and joining me today, I have a returning guest who I'm going to introduce to you in just a couple seconds, but I just want to give everyone a quick reminder that the Cult Film Companion Podcast is now available on every major podcast platform out there. So if we are on a podcast platform that you currently like but we are not available on please shoot me a message on twitter or on instagram or through email and i'll I'll do my best to get our podcast up there my twitter handle is at cult film comp c-o-l-t-f-i-l-m-c-o-m-p that's also the name for instagram and you can send us emails at the cult film companion at gmail.com and please join our facebook page so you can keep up to date with all the latest goings on when a new episode is happening and send us suggestions and we are of course a member of the blind knowledge collective at www.blindknowledge.com which is a great resource for some of the most incredible podcasts and video casts from around the world covering interesting and entertaining topics. So please check out blindknowledge.com and also please check out Newsly at www.newsly.me. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that captures the most trending topics from around the world and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow topics as specific as you would like, from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians to movies, and they'll find the latest trending articles and then read them to you. They also have podcasts. Our podcast, The Gold Film Companion, is a featured podcast there. So please download and use Newsly for free today, www.newsly.me. And also, please use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M, Cult Film. Drop the eye, pop in a one, and get a month free of their premium subscription. And today we are covering more than just a movie. We are covering actually a literary character that has been adapted several times into film. And thankfully, I have a huge fan of this series. Welcome back to the Cult Film Companion, Melvin at RoboPope. On Twitter, please follow him and give him some love and check out his online comic that we will talk about a little bit more towards the end. But welcome back to the show, Melvin. Great to have you. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Good night, everybody. I'm very thrilled. I'm so excited. Uh, I have so much to say about this guy, but we'll get to it. (laughs) Right. So we are actually the basis for our 
And um, the basis for this was actually a conversation that I've had with a couple people about a Mel, certain Mel Gibson movie called Payback. And this movie came out in the late 90s initially, but the director's cut came out in a 2005, I believe. So like almost almost 10 years after the fact. And it's interesting. We come across this a lot on the show where there are different cuts of a movie, a director's cut or a theatrical cut or a producer's cut or all different versions of movies are floating around. And a lot of times it's almost um, unanimous which cut of a movie is preferred. Uh, it's almost universally loved that the Blade Runner director's cut is the preferred cut of the movie. More recently, the Snyder cut of the Justice League has seemed to have fallen into favor much more so than the original theatrical cut. But we have something interesting here today because this, these are two very, very different versions of the movie, but they're both enjoyable for their own reasons. It's one of those things where you can, you can kind of like both and just appreciate the fact that we have two versions of this, of this movie and I'm going to actually ask Melvin to kind of introduce the character of Parker to the listeners uh, based on his uh, l where it started with a series of novels. So, Melvin, please take it away and tell us all about Parker and his literary form before we get to the movies. OK, OK. All right. So um, I'm going to ramble a little bit. I'm not going to be as straight as I can be. I apologize for that. But um, in a way, serendipity works that way. Like all these wonderful little discoveries that bring so much joy to your life, they happen in installments. They don't come to you all at once. And in my case, the introduction to Parker came through uh, Stephen King, actually. Stephen King is a writer who not only like he aims for greatness, but he champions greatness. Like through Stephen King, I discovered Harlan Ellison, Richard Matheson, uh, Charles Beaumont, Clyde and a few others that I cannot remember right now. Oh, um, Richard Clyde. Lehman and so on. But in the late 80s, uh, Stephen King published a novel called The Dark Half about a writer who was sort of taps into the dark, into the dark, his dark half and comes up with a series of novels that um, make him very wealthy but he has the usual trouble of uh, being sort of embarrassed by that like he wants to be respected and he's written a couple of books under his own name that got critical praise but don't really move the needle in terms of money but this other character which is like a like a thief like a psycho uh it makes him money but anyway what when i read that book as a teenager what caught me uh, about that is that the that Beaumont, the character in the book, the writer, talks about a character named Parker. And I'm definitely going to quote from the Apple novel here. Let me see. Okay. This is uh, the character referring to Donald Wesley. But from the early 60s until the mid-70s or so, he wrote a series of novels under the name Richard Stark. And those books are very different. They're about a man named Parker, who is a professional thief. He has no past, no future, and in the best of books, no interest other than robbery. And then I'm quoting for another part where he says, um, uh, I want my money, he says. And that's just about all he says. I want my money. I want my money. And so as a teenager, that description appealed to me a lot. So I kind of made a mental note of Richard Stark, but I kind of forgot about it. This is our early 90s now. So in the early 2000s, I'm at a bookstore 
And I happened to see a disused cover, hardcover, that says comeback. I'm Richard Stark. And a flashbulb goes off and I'm like, oh, Richard Stark. I wonder, is it the same Richard Stark from all those years ago in that book? And I uh, look at the synopsis and, wow, this is this appeal. This speaks to me. This is right up my alley. And it's, um, the book in question is called Comeback, and it involves Parker and his associates holding up an entire stadium. I'm not going to say anymore. Just check it out. It's uh, awesome. This is uh, published in 1997. So that was my introduction to Parker, who in the book, in the, in the movie that we're going to discuss is actually called Porter for copyright reasons. But essentially, that sums up uh, Parker. Parker is a criminal. He's sort of a, like an existential criminal. He only exists to commit a, uh, the perfect crime and then just spend the proceeds living large until his money is almost gone and it's time to go again. But- so um, to, briefly, uh, that, is my inter- that was my introduction to Parker. And I simply kept reading the book because I was so fascinated with this character. He's someone, not exactly you want to be friends with, but a fat, like in, a, in the way a cobra is fascinating. You know, a cobra is a, this beautiful, exotic creature, but you wouldn't want to, like, touch it. And that's what Parker is. And that appealed to me, that combination of a fascinating character that's a bit repellent. Right. Tell me about your introduction to Parker. Did he come to you like that, or in what ways did he um, present himself into your life? He's, we talk about him like he's a real person. That's how powerful he is. That's how he is. He's a very. He has. Well, I was gonna. I was going to say while you, while you were talking, it's very important to note, and I'm going to bring this up when we're discussing the movie that while he is very much an anti-hero, he also he follows. He has his own code of conduct, and yes, yes. I that's actually something that I want to bring up when we were discussing the movies because that's one of the issues that I have with the theatrical version of this movie but i actually um it th- this little seed like you said was actually embedded in my mind because i was an avid stephen king reader and i was familiar mm-hmm. with stephen king and similar to the way uh westlake the uh, the ac- the author's actual name stephen king published um several books under the pseudonym of richard uh backman and Backman, yes. yeah. that and, was another powerful one for me. And he actually he um he came up with that pseudonym because he happened to be listening to the Bachman Turner Overdrive at the time. So that's just a little mm. little tidbit. But he came up with the pseudonym because I guess the, the way the publish it was it's very similar to the way that this worked. Stephen King had a, a great batch of books, but they you know the way the publishers want to put out books, they don't want to put out like three, well, nowadays they probably want to put out three Stephen King books a year, but they want to kind of space them out. So he utilized having a suit on him to be able to put out some of his works that I I kind of get the feeling that some of them he weren't wasn't as proud of, some of them he was, one of which um, he's actually um, disowned a book called Rage, um, which is... He's he's disowned it because it's a book about a a a very troubled teenager that holds his high school hostage via gunpoint, and it's a very it's a very disturbing book, and it, it was a very different time when this book was originally published, and obviously King wants to distance himself from you know, that material. But under Richard Bachman, uh, he wrote um, at least four or five books 
and then he actually brought back this character, so to speak. And in the dark half, it's very much kind of a way of King exercising these uh, literary demons, um, so to speak. So actually, I was kind of familiar with this whole kind of character and why an author would use a pseudonym um, because of reading The Dark Half. But my actual introduction to the character of Parker and the works of um, of Westlake actually came about because of the movie Payback. And going back... Um, now, I actually... I've only read... I mean, the, the Parker series, I believe there's... There's well over a dozen, and I know that he kind of put the character to rest for a while, and he was encouraged to bring him back. But this this character was originally adapted, I believe, in the '60s, right? With a it was a Lee Marvin movie, I believe. Um, I guess that's the other famous or infamous adaptation. Like I, I listen to my and the way I perceive it. There is the um, Lee Marvin one, I think it's 1967, point blank. And then the other one would be uh, uh, the one we're discussing here, Payback, 1998. Right. There's been other adaptations of Parker, but I consider those two to be spiritually faithful, let's say, spiritually faithful to the character. Right. And I... then there is one in the 70s, actually, I don't know if you knew about, but in the mid 70s, 76, I want to say, Robert Duval played the character in a movie called The Outfit. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, the outfit is... And it's actually really good, too. So, at some oh. point, you may want to consider a future episode for that. No, I'm definitely... I want to consider... Uh, so, it's interesting because I'd, I'd like to do... I wish um, I had have had the foresight to, to order the version of, of Point Blank because these... Point Blank and, and Payback are both adapted from the same source material, The Hunter. The same book, specific book, yeah. Which, the same premise, the same... Yeah, but it must... Very different interpretations. You know, the same subject. Right, but it's just interesting to me that this might be the only time, well, at least to my knowledge, the only time that the source material has been adapted twice. Neither time have they utilized the original title, The Hunter. So... Mm. Um, that's just interesting. But for There's... that matter, I don't think that they have used the, the name Parker either time either. Uh, in, no, in no, there's... Point blank, I believe Lee Marvin is called Walker. They refer to him as Walker. No, there's... And, and he is Porter, like Mel Gibson plays Porter. Right, but there is a, there's actually a movie called Parker starring Jason Statham. Oh, yeah, um, I mean, uh, I, uh, like we can... <laughs> no, we don't... We don't... I, I can't really say a whole lot about it other than it's an okay action movie. It's missing the things I'll, I'll bring up later in this movie. It's a... Uh, it's, it's a, a confident Jason Statham vehicle, but what you know Jason Statham is known for, it, it does that very well. It does. It doesn't it, do Parker very well. No, see, uh, you know, the, you, you kind of summed up exactly my thoughts on the movie. <laughs> it's a little, it's actually very well directed. It's it's not a, you could see there's far, it's kind of middle ground for me. There, there are movies. Yes, I feel the same. It's, there are far worse. There are far worse. There are far worse movies, but there are also far better better movies. And if you want a really good Parker movie, I I would say that Payback is probably the easiest one to get your a hold of because there's the theatrical cut and there's also um, what's called straight up the director's cut. But yes, um, so we kind of have, and one of the issues that I have with this movie is. 
the original tagline for the movie is is kind of cheesy to me, it, which is um, <laughs> get, get. Let me hear it. Let the, me hear it. The, the, the tagline is "Get ready to root for the bad guy," and. <laughs> Hey, you know. I love cheese because I remember that slogan and I'm like, I, I remember, I think I was at a video store because uh, I never saw the movie in the theaters. I saw it on video later. Right. And I was at a video store and I see the poster and, you know, that tagline. And then I look and then oh, Richard Stark, once again, it's that name. That name keeps popping up and I pick up the movie and I was pleasantly surprised. I was just, wow, this is so um lean and propulsive and the pacing that, you know, it, now, looking back on it all this time later, I would say, like, once again, it's faithful to the attitude, to the spirit of who Parker is and of what Richard Stark does in, uh, with Parker in those novels. Right. But uh, I think you take on the slogan, because I love that stuff. Oh, okay. I love cheese. I love hyperbole, saturation. Like, I, I love all that stuff. So it is, but, like, I mean, as far as a main, like... And that's the thing. Some I we're gonna get into the reasons why this movie didn't do so well and why it was eventually recut and everything. It's very much a movie out of place in the '90s. And I was watching, so I rewatched the movie today. I rewatched the the director's cut, and then I I there's some bonus features on the DVD that, that includes um, interviews with the director and. He's very self-aware of why his version didn't work. He basically... Um, he, uh, the director, you mean Brian Helgeland? Yes. Helgeland? Um, yeah. Okay, and, okay. Uh, he's very self-aware. He basically said, well, what I did was I made a gritty 1970s style thriller, which I think is pretty much <laughs> on point. But it wasn't the sort of movie that was going to do well in the 90s. Um, and yeah, this... I, I agree. Yes, I, I agree. He did something that I would I argue actually attached into film noir, into that, that fatal, fatalistic aspect of film noir. Right. Of the protagonist usually, you know, getting himself into something that over their heads or not stopping when he should. And as you point out, yeah, this movie in the late 90s, it didn't really work anymore. And... I guess I'll let you go ahead, because we'll get into that eventually. Yeah, like um, that is probably what makes the difference between the director's cut and the um, and the the release, the, the the one that was released. Because I actually I'm usually always on the side of the director when it comes to studio release to cuts, but this is one time when I'm actually with the studio. Like I feel the studio did something that improves the movie. Like like you point out, they became aware of that. The right. release, like gritty, fatalistic noir in the late nineties, felt a little bit. Uh, out of place, so they actually made a movie that is more fun. It's something self-aware, too, in that they know what they're doing, that they honor what came before, but they're kind of spoofing it in a way also. They're kind of making fun of, like, that uber-hard-boiled, noirish, fatalistic type. Right. So, just before we even get to the movie, just um, to get everyone up to speed, Brian Helgeland um, started out as a screenwriter in the eighties. He scripted one of uh, he scripted a, a horror movie called Nine Seven Six Evil, which is pretty much only it's only it's only really notable because um, of all people, it's directed by the the original Freddy Krueger. Uh, Freddy Krueger, Robert Robert Englund directed it. And um, it was either be right before or right after 976 Evil. He scripted, I believe, 
I want to say it's Nightmare on Elm Street 4 or 5. One of those two. It's either the Dream Master oh, okay. or the Dream Child. He scripted that. He scripted a movie that we... Um, actually, you joined me for Highway to Hell, did right? I well, was just going to say, he wrote that, right? Like, right, uh, like yeah. The, the, the that he wrote it while he was on vacation and some cop just gave him a scare and then just drove off like nothing. Right, so he scripted that. And then the way Payback came around was that he wrote... He met Richard Donner... And he came up with an original screenplay for a movie called Conspiracy Theory, which is... I remember that one, yes. So that was directed by Richard Donner, and he, Brian, spent a lot of time on the set during, with, um, when Conspiracy Theory was being filmed, and uh, he developed a rapport with not only Richard Donner, but he de- developed a rapport with Mel Gibson, Gibson, and yeah. one day they were doing eight. They were doing some ADR for uh, conspiracy theory, and um, he had a file with some of the screenplays he was working on. And um, Mel Gibson actually was getting ready to do some ADR, and there was a delay, so uh, he picked up one of the scripts, and it was the first, not not even the first draft, but just like the um, the first act of what would become Payback. And he was talking, wow. so he talked to, so uh, Gibson and Helgelin started talking. And basically, he said, this is, you know, Mel Gibson said, this is really, really good. You know, um, let me know when you finish it up. But Helgelin was kind of like, yeah, like, I, I, I really like it. And I really like the source material. And I think it would be a really good script, but I'd never get a ch- I'd never get a chance to direct it. So Mel Gibson t- tells him, he goes, listen, let me know when the script is done. And if it's <laughs> in Mel Gibson's way, he goes, if it's cool, I'll give you a shot. And so Payback was one of um, Mel Gibson at the time. Uh, he might still have it, but I believe it's called Icon Production. Had his own production company. And, you was, know. Yeah, he was doing quite well at that time. He was right. doing fairly well up until the late 2000s. Right? I don't know what the hell happened to him. Oh, uh, well, there was some, yeah, we, we don't need to get into the personal life of Mel Gibson. Yeah. He, there were some faux pas, but he's since made a comeback and he's, um, he's actually, he's steady, he's working steady. yeah, so he's, you know, he had a bit of a stumbling block, but this was, this was in the nineties when Mel Gibson was the star. And I was, mm-hmm. I was, yeah. a, I was a huge fan because I'm still, I mean, I can still, I, at least once a year. I will just do a Lethal Weapon marathon, and I will watch all four movies. Oh, wow. And of course, uh-huh. of course, um, you know the Mad Max movies. He's he's done some incredible movies. He's also a very gifted director. Um, he's directed some movies he has as well. Directed some very very good movies. I mean, uh, we know pay, um, uh, what's it called? Braveheart. It's an epic, amazing right. movie. I remember watching that over and over. Like I love that movie. So yeah, so he's he's a very gifted person, and so what happened was he lo- he loved the script, and because of Mel Gibson's involvement, you know, the studio decided to give Mr. Helgeland a chance to direct from his own script, and you know, it was kind of rough from the get go. There was a lot of studio notes, and. The studio was hesitant because 
this is not especially the director's cut. It is not... The violence is very realistic. It's very brutal. It's very visceral. Rough. And um, basically what happened was, you know, one of the studio notes he got was, so Mel Gibson doesn't get away. He doesn't get the girl. And the dog is killed. (laughs) And the dog is killed. So the, he, exactly. the, he's like, wow, everything that could uh, go bad, making right. it look. <laughs> right. And we got we to gotta put our mindset back into the minds of a studio executive. We got Mel Gibson in a movie. We want Mel to get away with whatever he's, even if he's playing a not-so-nice guy, we, we still want him to get away. We want him to get the girl. And if there's a dog involved, the last thing we want is the dog to be killed. I mean, so these are just like, no these are just like, immediately um things that happened and uh before we get even more into like the technical aspects of the movie uh melvin if you would just a a quick plot synopsis of what happens in payback if if you don't mind no not at all um okay so uh what happens in payback is uh mel gibson uh porter in the movie he is a thief. He's a professional thief. He is uh, very good at what he does. You could say that he is efficient. He puts a heist together with um, a couple of associates. He is double-crossed, and then he is on the men. You know, first he gets better, and once he's on his feet, he is looking for payback. He wants um, his partner's dead, and he wants his money back. That's it. That's the beauty of the of this story. It's Revenge is a straightforward uh, movie. Right. So uh, what's interesting is just as Mel Gibson sort of um, order works his way through the uh, underworld. They never mention what city specifically is. I think they shot it in Chicago, but I like that they know they kind of keep it in its own universe. They never make a mention to real places. It so was just one aspect that I like about it. Right. It was the majority of it was shot in Chicago, but you, you, it's very interesting you pick up on that because that was one of the things that Brian Helgeland um, mentioned in one of the interviews was that they didn't want to specify a city because I mean, sometimes people then sometimes when you specify a city, people get too hung, too hung up on, well, that aspect of the city is wrong or they're looking for certain landmarks. Yes. So this, this way they, it's kind of just like, a, this, um, it's a name. Sorry to interrupt you, but I, I never heard that before. So I was curious, is this something held you on a group with the studio or were they arguing over the naming the place, the location? That that was that that didn't seem to be a point of uh, contention. Um, they were okay, so they agreed on that. They were both okay with that both parties. The the big the big part points of contention that that came up with this movie was the ending, which was entirely reshot. We'll get into that, <laughs> and the um, they wanted a um. It's almost similar to the way they did with Blade Runner. They insisted that there be a voiceover in the beginning, which is not included in the director's cut, but in the theatrical cut, the movie opens with a voiceover from Porter and a doctor kind of taking bullets out of him. Um, That opening, that that first sequence, I remember, like I said, this was a bit of a blind grab, but... That that first opening it says so much. Like I remember being like hooked in. Like after that happens, and then uh, Mel Gibson opens his eyes. Like I was just like I'm in. Like that was so cool. Like it, it was so efficient to the point. And you know how like in screenwriting classes and all that they talk about how voiceover is not recommended. Voiceover works perfectly here. That little moment, like that little 
it, how he intercedes in a very like it doesn't feel very abrupt the way he talks about what's happened to him and well, what he's planning to do. Well, but it works so well in this movie. Like the way the guy looks, like he does not look like a doctor. He's very far removed from a doctor. But that's all he's got. Like, as he says in the voiceover, that's his healthcare. That's the healthcare that a guy like him is into. Well, or he can't afford it. Well, this brings us to the for- the first part of the show where I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with you, sir. I oh, no. I like the opening of the director's cut much better. There is no, there's no um, scene with a the doctor. There's no voiceover. We just get this very cool musical score, and we're shown the character of Parker rather being told who he is and what he's about. We see him. He stump. He stumbles out of wherever he just came from. He's penniless. Yes. He's been shot. He's been double crossed. He robs from a uh, a beggar on the street. He pickpockets someone that kind of looks like him. It's all shown to us like this little plan of him eventually getting back on his feet. He pickpockets. He uses the money that he pickpockets until the um the credit card is called in, is canceled, and he um you know. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. I, that, I like that too, actually, because again, that tells you who he is. Like that tells you he this environment he walks through. Like he understands it thoroughly. He knows that that guy that he uh, that that uh, beggar that he takes the money from. He knows that guy is faking it. Right. <laughs> like just that little line when that guy, guy stands up, he's like, "Shut up! I cured you." Yeah. Because <laughs> he he couldn't walk, and it's like he was faking it. Uh, yeah, the guy, the immediately the guy knows that he's been robbed, and he just grabs him by the neck, and you know the guy's like, "All right, I've been busted." So like, I kind of so I like this show don't tell aspect to the character of Porter, uh, and 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 Helgeland explained that he wanted the character to be a mystery to us at the beginning. We we get to see as the movie progresses. Um, the character of of Porter, and we get to see him interact with his wife, and this is a, and then so something that we should mention is that he is double crossed by one of his associates, and he's also double crossed by his wife. So yes, the yes, first yes, person, yes. the first person that he comes into contact with after you know getting back on his feet is his wife. And she's, for for lack of a better term, pretty uh, a strung out junkie at this point. And yes, yeah. um, the consequences of what she did have taken a toll on her. Right, and this was this was another serious point of contention. This there is a very brutal scene between uh, Mel Gibson and I forget her first name, but. Uh, Unger is her last name. The ex- uh, Deborah Unger, I think, or Deborah Kara Unger. I remember her from Crash, David Cronenberg's Crash, and something else. But I remember uh, her predominantly from Crash because he does it all in that movie. Oh, everyone does it all in that movie. Yeah. Another movie for another time. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's actually exactly where I remember her best from too, because uh, there are some certain scenes in that movie with, well, like you said, with everybody that are just will be seared into your memory forever. After confronting her, there, I mean, in the theatrical cut, I think they sit down, they talk, and then he puts her to bed, 
and he takes her drugs away. In the director's cut, there's a very, very physically violent scene between the two of them. And I mean, and part of the part of the issue, and that's you know, it was a very there are several scenes in this movie, and you can verify for me if there are any in the theatrical cut, but in the uh, director's cut, there are uh, a couple scenes of man-on-woman violence that are... Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's, it's, yeah, not, it's not easy to watch, but then again, you kind of have to say these are the i mean these are actors we're being shown a story these are not the nicest people walking around these are not you know jehovah's witnesses going to spread the word of the lord we're talking about criminals drug addicts and you know violent <laughs> nefarious people it's a seedy world yeah it's a very so, seedy world it's it's very so it's not for everybody right and i'm not trying to justify the 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 man on woman violence but i mean it works for the story because he's so it's not like he's just like some alcoholic that comes home and beats his wife. I mean, this woman has betrayed him. She shot him, you know? <laughs> so like yeah, so like back, yeah. and again, I'm not trying I'm not trying to justify yeah, she shot him in the back of all things. Yeah. I'm I'm not trying exactly, to yeah. I'm not trying to justify the violence. I'm just simply saying there there's there's a reason that he is so aggressive towards her, you know? Yeah. Again, uh, yes, there is a reason and here's the interesting part where I guess they drew a little bit from the source material, even though he is mad at her, and you can, as you said, you know, he can, he is physically abusive to her. He doesn't quite, um, like, he doesn't, He I think he came with the intention of killing her, but um, he doesn't, he holds himself back, and that sort of, maybe is lost because, you know, the violence sort of takes your attention away from the fact that he, you know, he gets there, and he's probably thinking of all the things he's going to do to her, but he gets there, and, you know, he assault, he physically assaults her, but he doesn't, he, right. he can't quite work up the courage to kill him. No. He can't quite go to that place yet. So there is still some affection. It's kind of like he's, compl- you know, like how people describe some complication that's related. Right. That's a complicated relation. He's probably still dreaming and still mad, but he can't quite bring himself to do that. No. And that I, leads to something else happening, which I'll let you get to. Yeah, no, but immediately following this scene, he takes her to the bedroom and he, you know, he, he carries her to bed. He puts her to bed and he takes her drugs away and says, you're cleaning up. Yes. So like, like you said, it's a complicated relationship. He's not there to kill her. He doesn't want to see, I mean, when he finds out that, you know, he, he notices, he sees the track marks on her arm and he, he, you know, he knows what's going on. She's addicted to heroin. And, you know, instead of being vindictive or vicious, he says, you're cleaning up. He takes her drugs away from her he goes into the other room to take a shower. Unbeknownst to him, she still has a stash hidden, and she, she ends has a second stash. Yeah. yeah, and she ends up overdosing and dying. Then, unfortunately, that's the end of her character in the movie. But I mean, yes. again, we have to. I mean, it's a very simple story, but the characters are complex, um, especially the. I mean, especially Porter, or you know. We're just going to call him Porter because that's what he's called in, in Payback. Um, mm-hmm. His relationship with women is very complicated. Um, the relationship with his wife, who, you know, tragically overdosed. And then his relationship with the Maria Bello character later, later in the movie. Um, and, you know, so there's also, and I, I guess it's kind of, it's, 
There's also, we should note, uh, there, there is a couple scenes of man uh, man on woman violence but there's some also there's some <laughs> there's some scenes kind of played for humor of women on man violence particularly between Lucy Liu and the Lucy character yeah she's a riot yeah see I guess that's one thing that stayed consistent between the two because her character is still something of a uh, uh, maybe I don't want to say a joke, but something of a like a jokester, I guess, and that maybe she's sort of not taking the whole the situation seriously. No, I think she. And, and I, that's what she does. She's sort of she's a dominatrix, you know. That's what she does. She administers pain. Right, and, <laughs> and, and she just whip people, tie up dudes, and whip them. Right, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I don't think it's played for for laughs, but her character does add some levity to some heavy scenes. It's very funny. Mm. I mean, there's a scene where. Um, uh, Porter is interrogating the guy that double crossed him, and you could see her. She the, she's in bed with the guy, and she's getting turned on like when Gibson is threatening him, and he, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. about ready to us. He's about ready to to assault him, and she goes, "No, let me." And she just beats the crap out of this guy. <laughs> uh, that was pretty funny. Then he punches her, and then he points the gun. Let her work. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, and, and so like we have to, like I said, it's a simple story, but we have so we have like the Chinese mafia, which Lucy Liu is a part of, and that's that's who Porter initially robbed he from the mafia, um, the Chinese mafia, but then he's mixed up in the syndicate or the outfit as they're called in this movie, and there's dirty cops. As well, um, there's a lot. Yeah, there's, there's, enemies coming from all sides. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on in this movie, and we could talk about it for a great, you know, we could talk about it for a long time. But I mean, basically, I, I what I really want to talk to you about is the third act of this movie, which are so different. Uh, this is where they drift apart the most. Uh, the both cuts. Uh, the the final. And I guess the overall structure of the of the director's cut versus the uh, the one that we saw the cinematic cut is that again a part of uh, Porter in the uh, studio cut has a more I, I want to say playful that's not quite the word but he kind of deals with all these troubles that you pointed out all, you know all these different factions looking for their money he deals with them in a way that is not so there is violence but there's also a lot of ingenuity a lot of cleverness a lot of like um lying and sort of um, sidestepping whenever he can. In the director's cut, he uses, it's more violent. Like he, he is very much like a bulldozer. He just keeps coming and coming and taking more damage until eventually he just can't take any more damage. Right. And again, for me personally, I like that better from the studio cut. Like there's more, he, he's not so compelled to use violence every sing, to every single thing. Because the, uh, Parker, the character in the books, he can be violent, but he is uh, resourceful. He tries to avoid that, not necessarily because of um, moral issues, but because of the trouble that brings. He knows that brings police, that brings investigations, that brings heat. So that is one thing that I actually I feel the studio cut uh, did better than the director's cut. Okay. They make Parker more and more psychotic and more driven and more, I, I would say, wrong-headedly driven, and that he keeps insisting up in the violence instead of maybe finding simple ways through all these loopholes of troubles. So I was going to ask you if you've read the books, because it's it, one of the things that Helgelin mentioned was that he didn't 
he wanted Parker to be very much kind of like like a pit bull, like just not really reluct, like not saying that he's dumb, but not being necessarily the most intelligently driven person, more so just a force of pure energy and violence. And that comes through much more okay. in, in the director's cut. He's very much, yeah. But one thing I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, so, I mean, the, the third act is where things really differ. One of the things, now, the head of the, we never, in the um, director's cut, we never get to see the head of the syndicate, or the outfit, as they're referred to in the movie. We only hear a voice, and it's a female voice. Now, in the mm. in the theatrical cut, um, before we get into the differences here, let's... Poor Brian Helgeland on on a sun on a Sunday night um years ago won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for LA Confidential. That yes, yeah. that Tuesday he said that he was he he had this sinking feeling that he was going to be fired from the movie. So he said selfishly at the Academy Awards, he was like, I hope I win. And obviously everybody hopes they win. But I was thinking, well, the studio can't possibly fire me if I win the Academy Award. And, well, <laughs> it's kind of what they say, a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. He kind of called what happened. Sunday night, wow. he won an Academy Award. And For that... Acting highly confidential, I Yep. And two days later, he was fired from payback. This is amazing. I, I didn't know that, but I was actually in my mind thinking that the success of, you know, what happened with that would actually give him the clout to, it, this is really bizarre. And actually, he wins that, you know, he wins the Oscar. And like you said, just a couple of days later, he's fired from the set. Right. And I, I was thinking the complete opposite. I thought that it would actually give him more clout this is oh, really strange you would think so you would absolutely think so they're not going to, i mean i mean that's just like you can add that to your marquee coming from academy award winning screenwriter brian helgeland comes payback brian but, helgeland, yeah so basically I, I guess is it, i'm sorry uh, it's funny you mentioned that too because when i think of that poster the one that get ready to root for the bad guy you think they would have actually added that, you know, because they do that, like from award-winning director, writer Brian Helgeland comes payback and no, that is actually none of that is there. So no. maybe legally, I guess they couldn't do that. I guess one, if they took a percent, like X amount of seats out of his cut, I guess they couldn't do that anymore. They couldn't, maybe like, legally they couldn't do that. So they just left it with the, the so-called cheesy slogans, which I love a lot. <laughs> so it's it's interesting to me that, um, you know, I've, I've come across a, a great deal of director's cut. Uh, we were talking about Richard Donner. One of the things that, you know, came out about, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was his version of Superman 2. And basically it seems that uh, I think a lot of times this initial anger from directors being fired from a movie kind of subsides over time because, I mean, Helgeland has nothing but nice... I mean, uh, you know, he might be just trying to keep up appearances, but like when he's talking about when he's talking about payback, you know, like he doesn't hold any ill will. Like I said, he's kind of self-aware to of what about 
the uh, original version of Payback, you know, you know, his version was a little, and he's even a little self-deprecating. He's like, it's not like the studio, like I had some masterpiece like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, and they took it out of my hands. He goes, this was my feet, you know, this was his first movie as a director. I also happen to think that it's his best movie as a director. I think that his skill... <laughs> I think that he's got great skills as a screenwriter. I haven't... I think so, too, yeah. I think he's a great screenwriter. I haven't seen any of his movies that he's directed that I've just been completely blown away by, um, Payback included. I like it well enough, but it's not... You know, it's not... Yeah, well, it, it uh, is what it is. It's it's yeah, a great yeah. movie, but like, there's nothing. It's an enjoyable, yeah. I mean, his cut is enjoyable. It's okay. And like you said, if his intention was to make Parker, like you said, into a pitbull, I guess they should see it because he is like that. Like he seems, and I guess we can point out that this, for me, it's a bit of a problem because Parker, as you point out, like when he's with Lucy Liu, he is a little more. He's kind of funny. Like that scene is a little bit funny. It's diffusing, but uh, when it starts, he seems more like um, humorless and, and serious. Then you have like towards the middle. There's a little bit of like Mel Gibson turning on the charm and like what he's no, what he used to do really well. Yeah. And then towards the end, you have this sort of like outright aggression, and I, to me that feels inconsistent as a character. Like it, within the movie, never mind. We're not even mentioning the books here. We're just talking about within the movie itself. That to me feels a little bit inconsistent with the character. Right, and that <laughs> might have that might have something to do with the the studio uh, because they were. I think they were kind of banking on having something like a, a lethal weapon. I mean, it's interesting to me that if you watch, like I said, I've done this several times. I've watched the lethal weapon movies. That first movie, like the character that Mel Gibson plays, there's humor there, but there's nothing like the wisecracking that comes in lethal weapon two, three, and four. Like the humor's there, yeah. but it's a lot darker. So it's almost like. That second movie, there was a lot more. Like starting with *Lethal Weapon* two through three and four, there's a lot more humor, and so I think yeah. I think the studio wanted some more levity, wanted some more humor, and then so they 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 canned Helgeland, and then thirty percent of the movie was reshot. And instead of having this unseen character that runs this whole syndicate that runs the, the the higher up on the mafia we get chris christopherson in the movie and mm, yes. i'm gonna ask actually ask you to kind of talk about this aspect of the theatrical version because i haven't seen the theatrical version in several years and right now fresh in my memory i'm going off the uh director's cut version without chris christopherson uh but please talk a little bit about his character uh, I well, he is, um, I forget his name, but he is essentially the head of the outfit. He is like the go-to guy, like the book stops with him. And uh, well, he I, also Melvin. adds a, a little bit of levity to the to the director's, I mean, to the to the studio cut. Right. And as you point out in the, in the, oh, what's it, oh my God, like at the director's cut, he is not there. And this is one interesting thing that for me that feels both progressive and a bit of a slight in that the head of the syndicate is a woman. But all we get is a voice on the phone. We never have a chance to like study what this person would be like for a female to take over a predominantly male-dominated um, a crime syndicate. Right. That would have been like a 
it would have almost been like a its own story arc. But again, all you get is just a voice on the phone. Yeah, we'll give you your money, but you're not gonna enjoy it. Click. Like, yeah. So uh, again, a wasted opportunity for me. That feels like the, the, that particular thing, and that is, I guess, what um, a Chris Christopherson character brings to the to the studio because he brings a little bit of levity, also because there is a little bit of a running joke in that the total take that it's like, I think it's like ninety three thousand dollars, so they're going to divide it in half. He, um, uh, I forgot his name. The, the, the Por- him, but. I li- I like it that Porter says that he only. Everyone keeps confusing the amount, and he keep it's <laughs> always, he only wants what's owed to him, which is I mean it is a which running joke. That, yeah, I think I think he says that I they're like thirty four. 3400 or something and he's like no it's only it's like 44000 because i think it's half of that minus expenses because, right you know, like he's a, like he's like it... the rental and all that but the problem is like uh, when he it's like he said it becomes like a running joke and that people keep thinking he wants like 3000 and that keeps going and keeps going yeah uh, to that point where christopher stephenson shows up opens up brief here's your money 93,000. Yeah. And that's as close as you'll get to it. And he closes it again. And this uh, at this point in the movie, Mel Gibson is being tortured. He's trapped down in a chair. They smash his toes. But you still see Mel Gibson making that face. Like, he's about to correct it. But then he kind of shakes his head like, oh, why bother? Yeah. Like, why, why keep going with that? I, so again, that's another thing that's missing from the director's cut. It's just sort of bleak and humorless. And I guess what I, I'm going to make a, maybe a bizarre comparison, but... Some people are old enough to remember, hopefully listeners here, people used to believe that if you wanted to get a puppy to stop like crapping on the floor, you would rub his nose in, in the poop. And in a way, I mean, it, now people don't do it anymore. At least I hope that people don't do that. That's, you know, dogs learn very quickly. Dogs are much smarter than what people thought when I was little. Sure. But the director's cut feels like a cinematic version of that in that Glen Hill and takes this bleak, hostile, seedy environment and he just keeps throwing your face against it, throwing your face against it. And the result is something of a flat line that takes a little bit of an, of an upward arc towards the middle of the story, you know, when Lucy Liu and the, uh, how Porter goes about getting his revenge. What the studio cut does is, if I were to put that story in a graph, what we get is a sine wave. You get like little peaks and little dips, little peaks, but you have a consistency of things that keep the story, you know, they give you a little breather. You have these moments of violence, but then you have moments of tenderness or moments of fever that give you a little breather. We don't get that breather in the studio cut. We're relentlessly thrown into this world. And the result is a bit repellent for me. Like uh, when I watched the movie, I was like, this is okay, but (laughs) I feel like tired watching the movie. And I feel like I didn't really, like I know less about the people now than I did when I started. Right. Now it's- How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, it's to me, it's interesting, and I, I, again, this movie, the two versions, they don't, n- nothing about either version, like I'm completely in love with, nor do I completely dismiss, like, like I do, yeah. like I do with something like Blade Runner. If I'm gonna watch Blade Runner, I, I wouldn't. It doesn't even like register in my mind to watch anything other than like the ultimate director's cut. Like, it just doesn't enter my mind. Payback, I could watch either one. I happen to own the director's cut, and I I, I kind of like it because it's very... It, it reminds me of a very 70s movie. It's got a very 70s feel to it. One of the things, the technical things that I do not like about the theatrical cut 
is that it's got this blue, like, hue over everything. Like, everything seems like it was put through a weird blue filter. And correct... Yes, uh, I didn't th- notice that also. Uh, that, doesn't it only start with, like, that blue hue? And then it kind of, like, um, that that kind of fades into the normal color, which is still kind of bluish. It is, but the, yeah, there seems to be, like, a blue tint over everything. I kind of like the visual quality of the... Um, of the director's cut. And I also happen to really like, I didn't realize this until today when I was doing the research that the director's cut has a completely new score. Um, oh, wow. I didn't notice that. Either. Yeah. And I really like it. Like I, it has a really great feel to me. Now I I'm, I'm going off of memory here. Is there something in the theatrical cut with Chris Christ does Mel Gibson as Porter, does he kidnap Chris Christopherson's son? Uh, I don't remember that from the director's cut. That happened in the um no, in the studio cut. In the studio that's cut, what they I mean. Lure him yeah, the, with uh, Maria Villa's character. You know, she's an she's an escort. She's a like a professional a pro cult right. And she lures uh, uh, Chris Christopherson's son. And then, you know, Mel Gibson is driving. And again, there's a little moment where he opens the window, the, the window, the limo window, and he talks about how, uh, you know, my father never gave me a car. I had to steal my first one. Right. But again, it's just a little moment that has so much character and so much depth to, to um, rather but, shallow characters. The, but yeah, they, they, he kidnaps, they kidnap Chris Christopherson's son, and that's finally how they leverage, you know, the money. Right. But it's to me, see, that's something I... I I don't like. I don't like that. That doesn't... For me, that doesn't... And I'm not all that familiar with the character. That doesn't seem like Porter's style, though. That doesn't seem like his style. To threaten... Um, I guess it's not his style, but it's also sort of like... um, He's been getting getting, getting the runaround from people, so I think it's more like a, a... This is, again, why I prefer the studio cut better, because it feels like a progression... He approaches um oh Val the the guy the guy that betrayed him is Val the right. actress, uh, the character is Val yeah he approaches him directly Val instead of maybe he doesn't have the money anymore he basically used the money to buy his way into the mob he used that as a sort of like a, a union fee like he <laughs> yeah yeah fee in with the mob right so that doesn't work so he takes the next step which is to talk to the second in command who is actually uh, William Devane. Right. So I guess um, so. That doesn't really work. That leads to having to kill that guy. He goes to talk to the next guy, which is um, James Coburn, another really cool actor of the seven. Right. 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 And this is something you, know, you never noticed that until now that we're talking about it. But this movie had a very inspired casting choice in having that, in having James Coburn, William Devane, and Chris Christopherson, because in the seventies there were in quite a few like um, crime capers, funny crime capers, hard boiled crime, like. It was a great little nod, I guess, to what came before by actually having that. And, you know, I just realized that now just well, having this conversation. Yeah. Anyway, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, Brian Helgelin, yeah, though he purposefully went out of his way to cast uh, Brian Devane and um, James <laughs> Coburn. And and James Coburn, he, he did not have anything to do with Chris Christopherson being cast because he he wasn't part of the production at that point but he said that oh, it was oh, a very yeah, it was a very conscious effort on his part and he said that you know this was his first movie 
And, you know, he was just getting his foot in the door as a director, but he had already met and worked with Mel Gibson. So it was funny. He was saying that he was much more intimidated about working with James Coburn than anybody else on the show, on on the film. Um, and he said... Brian or, or Mel Gibson? Brian. Brian said he had no... He, oh, okay. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't intimidated by Mel Gibson because he had worked with Mel Gibson on Conspiracy Theory. Mm -hmm. But he never worked with James Coburn yes, yes. And, and that was somebody that he looked up to. So he said that, like, I, I didn't even, like... I, I didn't even have, like, the nerve to give him any sort of direction. I just kind of let him do his own thing. And then yeah, they... Yeah, like, who are you telling me? But, but no, actually, yeah, it's funny because he's pretty memorable. He's sort of like a... He comes across as a bit of a hippie in the, in the James Coburn's character. Like, the way he just... Man, that's me, man. Why would you do that? That's just me. Yeah, when he shoots... And I think that behind the scenes, him and Mel Gibson, they're, they were having a blast. Like, they ended up improvising a lot because they were just having so much fun together. We're doing their lines together. Yeah, they... um. But, uh, that is amazing. No, Byron did something fantastic. I actually... I just realized that now. Yeah, he hired... And interesting in its own way, uh, Chris Christopherson works within that within the context of you know those guys. Like, no, that was actually really cool. But anyway, going back to what we were saying earlier, this is a progression. You know, if, if he goes to William Devane for well, Val, he goes through Val to the underling, which leads to William Devane. That doesn't really go anywhere. He goes to um, Dave's cover, and that kind of leads to something. It leads at least to having some conversations. And then next, he does that. He kidnaps uh, uh, Chris Christopherson's son, and that finally gets things going and that he's going to get his money now. Right. And from there, that leads to the final act, which is, you know, all the players coming at once. The, the Chinese mob, they, they set up a place to meet to make the, the exchange. But then the mob, Chinese market shows up. The cops show up. Everybody shows up all at once. So it, it's crazy. It gets into like a crazy uh, shootout situation. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, and, and, and the, the, the endings are really where these movies um, diverge from one another. Uh, to me, I kind of like, I mean, here's the thing that I just realized looking up on some of the notes. So the director's cut of this runs a lean, lean 90 minutes and the theatrical cut is 101 minutes. So, I mean, we've got and we got to keep into mind that, you know, 30 percent of that 101 minutes was, you know, reshoots not featuring um, the director. So, I mean, to me, I remember because the first couple times that I watched this movie, I, it, the, 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 the director's cut wasn't even available. I remember I was too young to go see this in theaters, but this was something that I, I, I eventually, um, it was recommended to me as a rental. And I remember really, really liking it in particular. I really, really liked Chris Christopherson in this movie. I think that he was really, really good. So so if I, my biggest, my biggest issue <laughs> with the director's cut is that I like, I like Chris Christopherson as an actor and I like his character in the movie. But what I don't like is the whole involving his son kind of thing just doesn't it doesn't seem to really ring true porter to me as a character seems like the kind of person that lives by it's very important that he's got a certain code um which is backed up by this the whole thing you know that he's very specific about the amount of money that he wants he only wants his cut i mean a really greedy person would be like 
you know, I was backstabbed. I was almost killed. I want all the money that was taken in this heist. He only wants his cut. He has this certain code of conduct that he follows. And it seems to me that involving someone's kids doesn't, it seems to violate that code. That doesn't seem like his style. He kind of seems like he's got a problem with someone. He's going to go right up to that person like you said it's an escalation like he's slowly working his way up because what he says to someone i think it's a very interesting piece of dialogue is that he says no 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 committees nothing like this when it comes down to it there's always he says he specifies there's always one man to talk to and it turns out in the director's cut it turns out that it's actually one woman he goes it always when you when you boil it down to everything it always comes down to one person like i don't want to hear this commit this committee nonsense but to me going i should actually point out um what you just said those lines that you mentioned they're actually very, very close in the novel, in The Hunter, in the novel, when he finally gets the meeting with, um, with uh, I guess, the same one, the, the second in charge in the, uh, in the outfit. It's right. actually very similar, and it's also very consistent. I should mention, though, like, I haven't read the books multiple times, all the books. I would still be reading them if uh, Donald Wessick, unfortunately, hadn't passed away in 2008. Right. And it made me sad because there were more Parker novels coming. Based on what happens at the very end of the last one he wrote, there were new adventures coming, and I was really fired up for that. So I mean, I was very sad when he passed away. But um, in the books, Parker can be brutal. Like he can be violent. Like he, uh, there is one, in fact, I can't remember which one specifically, where he tortures a woman because she will not give him information. And it's interesting how he describes that because he, you know, Parker t- asks her a question, and he says, you know, I don't want to spend all night doing this. Tell me what I need to know. Like, where is the person? She refuses to, and he's like, um. The way the book describes it, he is disgusted, but he's going to tie it up. He's going to do it anyway because I need information. Like he is a like you said, he does have principles, but he is not like a nice guy. He is very much not no. uh, like a. He doesn't have the moral attachments. He if he has if you don't give him an out, if you don't do what he needs from you or what he wants from you, then he will use violence. Right. But at the same time, he checks himself constantly because he knows that that typically. That that can lead to a way of thinking where that becomes the first solution. So he's always holding himself in check. Right. When, whenever the impulse to shoot somebody comes along, he kind of holds himself in check, takes a moment to think, and like, well, what do you want? Like, what is it? What will take it? You know, for you to give me the information or give me the money or whatever. And and, and, you, and sometimes in some of the books, instead of killing people, he actually goes and does a job for them, and then you know he collects money and they also get money. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. He's a fascinating character in that. Even he uses violence like a tool, like he uses violence, but not the way, um, I was, I think, well, I guess, uh, Alexis Machine, going all the way back to what I mentioned earlier, the dark and the character in the dark half, who's sort of psycho- psychopathic and right. fun doing it. Parker is more about, it's a tool, like, I will use this if you, if I cannot negotiate with you any other way, but I'd rather not. That's kind of how he works. Yes, and it's, it's very evident throughout the movie that he would much rather like to him it's violence is just like the that's the that's the last option that's not the first option he's you know when he's talking with these characters he realizes that okay and he kind of threatens them and then he threatens them in a way to say that you know if you don't tell me what i need to know or if you keep giving me the runaround this is what's going to you know 
these are the consequences. Like, I'd much rather get my money back without having to kill anyone. But, but, if it comes to it, I will absolutely kill you. And I'll kill, like, your associates. Anyone that's involved in it. But, you know... It's very inter- it's interesting to me, and you bring up yeah the the character the machine in the dark half, um, which is a very interesting book, and it's actually one of I would say one of the more underrated Stephen King film adaptations. Um, check it out. It w- it was on Tubi, I believe. Um, it's it's worth uh, it's. Uh, I'll check it out. I noticed George Romero, which is um right. Uh, which they said I like George Romero a lot, so I, I should check it out because I actually like that novel too. I I duality and it's something that I'm very fascinated with, like the duality of people. Like how yeah. we we all have this dark side, but you know, to access it, to sort of hold it in check or to let it loose completely, sort of kind of thing. Now I'm going to ask you because I don't remember how does the theatrical cut of the payback end because I don't remember. Okay, so uh, in the in the shootout to get the money, like Parker does get the money, but he gets shot. In I, I guess mortally he gets shot. This is a, the movie kind of leaves it blank. Uh, uh, ambiguous. They don't actually show him dying. They leave it ambiguous. And when Maria Bello like screaming and crying because he's he's getting weaker, he's passing out. And he got shot the same place where Mr. Orange got shot in Reservoir Dogs. So the implication is that he probably will die. But um, again, the movie sort of leaves it vague. I'm, I'm assuming that you know being shot in in the gut like that, you probably will die. But the movie sort of leaves it in a way that reminds me again of a uh, postcode film noir, where like um you know. Bad people get their actually no free code, free code, uh, haste, free haste code, uh, crime movies where the criminal gets his comeuppance at the end. You know, like there's violence, there's shooting, but in the end, the criminal uh, gets get, gets his just desserts. And okay. this movie kind of reminded me of that. Parker gets shot, Porter, um, sorry, Porter gets shot, and the movie uh, fades away when Maria standing uh, over, kneeling next to him and crying and trying to get him to move. And the implication is. Maybe he dies, maybe he doesn't, but because this movie feels very much inspired by uh, pre-code and 1940s film noir, very likely he dies. He dies. But again, it's I, we cannot say that. We never actually see that happen. So, so yeah. That was a choice, I guess, a directorial choice to maybe leave us wondering. Right. And I think they kind of wanted to leave the door open for a sequel, potentially. Um, potentially, that, yeah. yeah. Potentially. And... And the director's cut, it's also ambiguous. Except they're driving away. Uh, he shot multiple. He shot multiple times um, in the final. It's actually not even a shootout. It's not even a final shootout in the director's cut. He thinks that he's got. You know, he finally gets them to agree to give him his money, and he thinks he's got everyone just where he, they are. But he wasn't counting on they. They, they were one step ahead of him, and actually, it's a female assassin that that shoots him. And it's implied and verified by the director that um, the final scene of the director's cut is him in the passenger seat, Maria Bello's driving. They're driving out of the city, where whichever city this may be, and. Um, she says, I need to get you to a, a doctor. I need to get you to a hospital. And he goes, no, I, I know a person. And uh, they, uh, she reaches over and, and 
clutches his hand and it's a fade to black and the implication is is much clearer it's supposed to be much clearer that he actually dies in this version now it's interesting okay. to, now i just want to bring up something and we don't really there's not much for us to discuss just because neither uh, you haven't seen point blank mm-hmm. have you melvin no, I've seen it. Yeah, I have seen it a couple oh, of times. Yes, because one of the things that I read when I was doing the research for it is there's a lot of theories about like the the events of Point Blank are told in a non-linear narrative, and there are a lot of theories on like whether or not this is all like like the 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 plot of the movie of Point Blank is taking place in like this character's last remaining memories before they pass on um that just seems I heard that also, yeah. yeah okay so i'm not, yeah so it's very interesting <laughs> i mean it's i can see why i think brian helgelin was much he wasn't interested in creating a franchise or creating a series he just wanted to tell what he says like a pulpy noir thriller crime thriller very lean and mean and you know no fat it's it this is a trimmed lean steak that you get um mm. that just cut it, it's a secret it definitely is very lean and very fast moving it's just yeah. like i said i find that it draws so much on on what came before in a way that makes it feel dated you know like it feels a little bit dated for the 90s and again this yeah. is where i feel the studio could succeed and maybe homaging what came before but also kind of poking fun at it, making making you aware that it's a little bit outdated, so they kind of updated it for the time. Yeah, and I just want to briefly mention that there is a lot more humor injected into the movie Parker starring Jason Statham. There's, it's very, it's much more light. And very light, yeah. So, maybe an action light on everything else. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think What's great about this is that there's so much potential, and I just hope that eventually we get... I think that, you know, there's so much material, and the character is so interesting. To have, like, somebody like HBO do do a mini, a Parker miniseries, I mean, there's there's plenty there. There's, there's, a, there's a lot there of... There is much, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of meat I'm on the board. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, as as someone that's more familiar with the books, are there any particular storylines or or a particular book in your mind that you would like to see adapted in the future from from oh, with wow, Parker? A, yeah, they're I'm, all very cinematic books, and that they're okay. very um, action driven because Parker is very much about doing something. Like if he's not you know committing a crime, he's spending the money. He's living in, in like nice hotels. And just living life, just living, giving, living large until the money starts running out, and, and then, then he starts looking for for a sport. So, uh, but uh, let me see. Why th- that I think would be very. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Please, I was gonna. If you were still thinking, I was gonna ramble about something, but I'll I'll get back to that in a second. No, no, please, exactly. Go ahead because I might give me ideas oh. on, on which one, which one of the many books he wrote. Well, you sent me. Yeah, you sent me a couple yeah. articles to read, and it was very interesting to me that um, Westlake was talking about how that. He he, kind of channeled a different voice in air quotes as an author when he was writing the Parker books as Westlake, and that he took a lot of inspiration from one of my favorite authors, Elmore Leonard, which I can see because Elmore Leonard talks about how 
minimal and lean his writing is that if a character doesn't have to say something he's not like the the dialogue is very quick it's very blunt it's very um witty but it's very to the point there's not a lot of over exposition there's not like huge exposition dumps like the the dialogue is very minimal and very to the point um where some authors yeah, Parker, where Parker's some, like that Parker's very yeah. much a guy who when like when he's for example when he meets with associates he'll take a moment to first sort of like think through what he's going to say like what is the least amount of words required to say what I have to say and that's what he does like he really does not say more than he has to no, he's... so that is consistent. And it's funny. I never read him or learned it, but I did read the little book that he published on on writing. You know, like his writing tips. Oh, El... so I need to change it. I need to read him or learn it. Oh, absolutely. Um, El, uh, just a, a great author that unfortunately, uh, well, uh, there's some really good f- uh, adaptations. My one of my absolute favorite adaptations of an Elmore Leonard work is. Um, out of Sight, directed by Steven Soderbergh, starring oh, oh, yeah, George yeah. Clooney. That and, is a good one. I love that. Yeah, um, that's probably one of my, that's my personal favorite. And of course, the TV show Justified with um, uh, Rayland um, is an excellent TV show. Oh, um, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Timothy Oliphant. Uh, I'm a fan of that guy. Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. yeah. So this is based on a. Did he, he create it, or is it based on a book by his? It's based on a novella, like of all things. Like oh, wow. he, he had uh, Elmore Leonard had come up with this character, and he only wrote a couple short stories for him. Uh, for him, one of which was called um, "Fire in the Hole," which I think was the basis for like the first episode of the first season of Justified. But with the success of Justified, he he conti- he published at least one more book. Uh, like a full-fledged novel. <clears throat> but, I mean, yeah, Elmore, wow. Le- Elmore Leonard is one of those um, authors that uh, sometimes the transitions are really, really good, and sometimes they're kind of, they're, they're, they're messy, so you kind of have to, it's it's tricky, but... Um, Speaking I, of messy, did you like uh, Get Shorty? Did you like that movie? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I like Get Shorty. Uh, oh, okay. It I, was okay. It wasn't, I didn't like it as much as Out of Sight, but it's okay. Like, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think in comparison to the sequel, be cool. Uh, <laughs> Get Shorty is a work of is a work of genius. It's a yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it, it it can't. It in my personal opinion, it doesn't hold a a, a match or yeah, a lit match to Out of Sight. And I also have to say, and I'm going to say something somewhat controversial. Uh, my favorite. Di- movie directed by Quentin Tarantino is Jackie Brown, which is based on an Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch. That's actually my favorite Tarantino, also. Yeah, like it's interesting. Yeah, like I, I enjoy Pulp Fiction for what it is, but um, I like Jackie. I guess there's some element of maturity to Jackie Brown that I enjoy that is not present in Pulp Fiction. Like you're dealing with like older characters, well, and they're sort of looking back on their lives. So there's an element of that that I enjoy. That is not present in any of Tarantino's movies. Well, like, and, like and, little sort of introspective moment that the characters are having. And I, I, I'm willing to, to bet vital parts of my anatomy that a, a great deal of that introspection <laughs> and character development comes comes from the fact that we're working with 
again, I'm going to be controversial. I I think that Elmore Leonard is a much better writer than than Quentin Tarantino. So, but enough about yeah, Tarantino. Yeah, I, enough about Tarantino. Well, let's let's get back. Let's start wrapping things up here for for payback. All right. Yes. So, um, I mean, what's great about this is that we can have a civilized discussion debate over which which version of this movie that we have and i think that the the highlight is though that we live in a world now where we have the opportunity to enjoy two versions of this movie and they make for a very interesting at some point I, I'm going to have to track down the theatrical cut, and I'd actually be I I like these I like this character, and I like this movie enough that I'd be willing to to watch both of them back to back because I I want to kind of see the differences and pick up on things that I didn't really notice and things that I'll appreciate in different versions. And again, as I, I personally prefer the director's <laughs> director's cut, but I can see why people appreciate the theatrical cut more um i can i can i can and i'm in the same boat uh sorry i keep interrupting you no i was just let me just quickly finish my thought and then i'm going to turn it over to turn it over to you and let you have the floor um where like i said earlier when you're talking about two different versions of a movie very often there's one version that a lot of people the majority of people like and I can see why I can see why people like the 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 director's cut of Blade Runner or why they like the director's cut of whatever movie I can it, it's clear to me but something like payback is is much more interesting to discuss because there are there are qualities to appreciate in both versions, and there's not a there's not like a clear cut winner here. There's not we're all winners when it because we've got this great character, um, and we get two different versions of the movie, and so we're all winners. It's not it's not to say that this one's superior. It's all about having an opinion, and I can respect. I respect the points that you brought to the table in regards to the theatrical cut. Like I said, I really, really like Chris Christopherson, uh, Chris Christopherson's character. Um, my issues with the theatrical cut have to do with the visual style um, and that the, the subplot with the the sun doesn't hold too much water for me. But I mean. That's 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 my personal opinion, and like I said, there's no clear cut winner here. Um, both both versions are are well loved, and both and surprisingly, whereas um, a lot of times when a like a director's cut comes out, um, critically one will do a lot better. They're kind of on even playing field. If you Google which version is better, you're going to come up with the same amount of articles saying that the theatrical cut is better as you are coming up with articles that say that the director's cut is better. So it's it's a win-win situation, and it's just a great movie. And if you've listened to me and Melvin talk about Payback and you haven't checked out Payback in a while or you haven't even checked it out at all, you, uh, you know, 
I'm going to say check out the director's cut, but I would say if given the opportunity to check out both, I say check out both. And uh, Melvin, the floor is yours to um, start wrapping up this conversation about payback. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Well, I I agree with you. Yeah, and like that, we can agree to disagree. Like um, we can have uh, our cake and eat it too because you have both versions. If right. you want the more bleak, the more brutal one, that's there for you. And if you like me, you prefer the the studio cut because it has like a little bit of levity, it has a little bit of a spoopiness to it, mm-hmm. but still very entertaining. Well, that's there for you as well. Like, yeah, we're not gonna be like Twitter. You know, we can agree to disagree, <laughs> and you know, right. it's just not for you. That's all that means. But um, I wanted to get back to it earlier. You were asking me, like, which uh, book you'd like to see made into uh, adapted. Oh, yes. Uh, there is one from the very late 70s called um, The Mourner. And what's interesting about that one is that uh, Parker is looking for um, someone. There is someone that he's looking to, to, to complete a score. And he, he runs into this person who's from an Eastern European country and takes him on a tangent. That is very interesting because it's like a West, like trying to do a little bit of like a latter day Cold War, and that this person is like an emissary from an Eastern European country, but he's there actually to take some money that's hidden in a statue. So it's a very interesting book in that it sort of starts one way, goes into the other, but again, not in a abrupt way, very smoothly, it leads you into this path that I find very interesting. So that is something that um, I, I'd like to see made into. Maybe a mini series. Maybe it could be a, a short episodic thing. Yeah. Um, but um, to I, I can wrap it up by saying, read the books. You have both movies, but also read the books because this character is fascinating. I described him as a cobra earlier in that. Yes. He is a person that you kind of sort of have a begrudging admiration to because he is um, he does not suffer gladly. Like this guy is sort of like a machine. He sits down, figures out this is the problem. How do I? What is the straightest line to solve this particular problem that I have? Once he figures out what that line is, he walks that line, and you're either with him, or you work together, or you don't matter, or you don't, you're not interested, or you get in his way, and you're in trouble, and he deals with you in a in a very decisive and final way. So he is someone that you kind of have a begrudging admiration for, but you admire from a distance. You don't actually want to like do something with that guy. Like you don't probably don't want to like get into business with that guy because his business is a business of losers. But he was a winner in that business. He is very cold, very methodical, very efficient. He kind of takes the glamour out of there. He just approaches it like a like a project, like the way you would approach filmmaking or some artistic project or a construction project. Right. He boils it down to the essentials. This is what's required. This is what's needs to do. Who are the best people to do this with? He approaches those people, and then he does it. And then something goes bad, and the rest of the book is trying to get out of that. But again, he approaches this in this very cold, bloodless, methodical fashion. Right. And it, they're just uh, a thrill to read. They're so well put together, so well written, structured. They're fantastic. So I want to recommend those. I also want to recommend both because one cut probably will have what you like that the other one may not have. Both cuts are equally good. So it's all good. Right. And, and yeah, like you said, we're not going to be like Twitter on here and say, oh, no. <laughs> they're going to be tweeting shit posting back and forth. Right. Mike, no. Well, you, you have to be kind of one of those threads you're screwed. Like, right. For days on end, you'll have to read tweets that have nothing to do with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all about, um, and and it's it's so great that we could come from different views, but we still have the same amount of love and respect for this movie and the same amount of love yeah, and respect exactly. for this character. So, I mean, that's I, it's a win-win situation. So that 
That's why I this. Would agree with that, yeah, yeah. So this movie is special because it, it's a win-win. Like, um, it's and just from you telling me about that 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 story, there's there's yeah. I kind of wish that payback was more of a hit so that we. I actually think that Mel Gibson is is really good in this movie. I like. I think so too. Yeah. He's. And I prefer him better. And uh, once again, the, the studio cut because. They balance, they strike a balance between, you know, the psychopathic violence and still a little bit of charm that, you know, like the, the Mel Gibson charm and courage, yeah, but he, he, yeah. he can turn on and off. But so, which I feel they kind of push down a little bit for the, for the directors. Right. But again, you know, it's all good. You know, so either one is, they're both good. They're both very good. So before we, we wrap it up, th- this question just came to mind and this is, this is one that I'm going to give you. Just a couple seconds to think about because I kind of want your gut reaction. So I think that Mel Gibson was 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 well cast in this movie. I think Jason Statham was miscast in the movie of Parker. Melvin, I'm putting you on the spot. If you had your choice of anyone, living or dead, who would be the ultimate actor to play Parker? Mm, this is a tricky one. I'm going to say... Um... It's a Fred Ward, the Remo Williams, uh, Tremors. Yeah. Am I saying the name right, Fred Ward? I think yeah, so. Fred Ward, I think he would be a really good one. He was in a movie in the, I think, 1990 called um, Miami Blues. Interestingly enough, adapted from a novel by Charles Wilford, another one of that little group of crime writers that I consider to be above and beyond. But in, the, in that movie, he actually kind of taps a little bit into that dark side. In the other movies, he doesn't do it so much. But uh, I would maybe out of not now that out of nature he is not he probably wouldn't do it. But in the like in the late eighties, early nineties, he would have been perfectly cast for that because I think nobody would have expected that. Like by then, you know, Fred Ward from Remo Williams, from you know, like charismatic, mm-hmm. engaging, charming Fred Ward. But to, for him to work with someone who just tapped into that side that we only saw a glimpse of in Southern Comfort. And a little bit more in, in uh, Miami Blues. I, that would have been yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I would have loved to see that. <laughs> um, that just reminds uh, me. A that... runner-up would be Nick Nolte, actually. I think Nick Nolte did that in a movie in the late 70s called Who Will Stop the Rain. And another one in the mid-80s that I haven't seen, but I'm very interested in seeing because it's actually a Walter Hill movie called... Um... Oh, man, I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to do a quick Google search here. Uh Wait, it, it's uh, a Nick Nolte movie with Walter Hill? Uh, no, it's a Walter Hill movie with Nick Nolte. Uh, Extreme Prejudice, Extreme Prejudice. Yeah, like a, Nick Nolte taps again into that dark side, and he is fantastic in it. So I think Nick Nolte would probably be a very, not now, again, but in, in some years back, like in the mid, late 80s, early 90s, he would have been a fantastic Parker. Those two guys would have been very good Parkers. No, what about you? Uh, Oh, where are you, where are you from this? Uh, <laughs> see, I, you on this spot now. yo, dear, I thought this was gonna happen. Uh, I'm trying to think. Who, <laughs> it, it it really all depends. Like, I mean, if if I had my parameters for whenever I could do this movie, um, oh, gee, see, it's tough. Like, I'm trying oh, to oh, think. Oh, like, oh. if if I was doing it today. Like if I was given the opportunity to do something for 2022, like the the choice of actor would be different than if I could yeah, go. Yeah, I can't think of anybody 2022. No, like it's it's. Uh... I would 
I'm gonna uh, throw, I'm man, gonna throw. Yeah, it's hard to think of them. I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw the modern current actors, like the current, you know, young up and coming or you know, mid-tier career actors, people who are kind of like in the, not quite, you know, they're not young anymore, but they're not quite at that age where they will be too old to continue playing yeah. certain roles. So I'm I can't gonna think of anybody. I mean, Chris Pine, but Chris Pine is just he's played though. Uh, yeah. Now I'm going to say that if I could, if I could go back in time and do a Parker movie in the '80s, I would want William. I think William Hurt could do it. I think he. I think um, he. I think he'd be an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah. I could. I could see him working. Yeah. I could also see someone like Michael Rooker doing it. Oh yes, absolutely. Michael Rooker would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Michael Rooker. Oh, man, yeah. No one's ever thought of putting him in a movie in that in that role. I'm just well. It just so happened what I was doing when you were asking when you were mentioning actors. I just looked over at my my video collection and uh, one of the movies there front and center and one of the rows of Blu-rays is uh, Henry Portrait of the Serial Killer, and I'm thinking. Mm. Wow, Michael Rooker could yeah, probably. He, looks, yeah, he actually looks like he could be. He could be like a private eye taken. Yeah, know, he's hard boiled. And I'm thinking, um, Dark City that had William Hurt as kind of like the private eye investigator in Dark City. That's where I'm. Oh, yeah. So that that's where I'm coming from with my choices. Uh, yeah, I'm not even gonna try to think of someone modern day to do it because they did. A... I can't think of either. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really like a stuck for idea. I'm yeah. looking at names, but we'll, we'll but come. I'm looking right now. I'm, I'm looking at names, like you know, movie posters of like recent movies and yeah, it's... man, no, I can't really think of anybody current. No, yeah, we'll just we'll leave it at that. But um. Melvin, thank you so much for joining me once again. Before we um before we wrap up here, uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on with you, Robo Pulp, in your uh your online comic and where we can where oh, people okay. can find it. Uh, yes, so um so I made this comic book that uses like um a lot of um not UFO mythology but sort of like paranormal mythology, like Men in Black, um, sleeper agents of the Cold War era, um. Uh, so and I and I wrote into this this comic book uh, that is suspense. It's a sci-fi suspense uh, thriller, which is my favorite thing ever. Thrillers are like a my like where I live. Like that's where I live. Like, the movie we saw was a thriller. Right. <laughs> like the one we just discussed. I mean to say. So and if you go to my profile, which is uh, at Robopulp, there is a Gumroad link that you can download it for free or whatever you feel like paying. I don't really want money. I'd rather that you if you like it, share the link. Uh, and the novel is titled, the comic book is titled The Plot, or graphic novel, if you want to, if you like to call it that way. If comic book bothers you, you can call it a graphic novel. But you can find it in my profile, at Rubberpulp. So, a gun link. yes, out. make sure that you're following Melvin on Twitter at Robopulp. Uh, check out The Plot if you like these conspiracy th- theory the the men in black but not the movie men in black like the actual no, well, Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, yeah no no no, 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 no. originally conceived uh, back in the 50s yeah these all lanky guys who didn't quite behave humanly and they just seem to appear in your house and you better not be talking about aliens so we're gonna do something bad to you, I gotta think. so check out Melvin on at Robopulp this is the third time 
you've joined me on the show, and I thank you so much because I had a blast, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope that we can do it again in the near future. Oh, I, oh. I love this. This is so much fun to be able to just have these conversations <laughs> with someone. Well, uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna wrap it up, and then I'm actually going to. We're gonna talk off mics for a couple minutes because uh, I got a couple movies I'd like to to uh, to run by you and see if you'd like to come back on the show. You, my friend, have an open invitation here in the Cult Film Companion. Thank you all for listening. From Melvin at Robopulp, my name is Chris. Keep it cult. Watch something out of your comfort zone and you'll probably not regret it. Thanks again for joining me on the Cult Film Companion podcast.